the most wonderful time of the week. Okay, boys, how are you, fellas? Jungle Jim Jerome coming at you with uh, another episode of Inside Curling with me and the two World Curling Hall of Famers, Warren Hansen and Kevin Martin. A uh, little bird, Warren, told me a big birthday in a week or two. Yeah, well, we don't want to talk about that, Jim, so forget it. Warren, it would be very tough for us not to celebrate someone's 100th birthday, okay? So we'll have to have to watch for that, okay? Anyway, welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and thanks for listening uh, every week. Uh, we're happy that you're with us. And uh, also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, and we appreciate them uh, for supporting this show and many other things in curling. That's Sports Interaction who brings you what's happening around the curling world. Nestle Boost, the sponsor of Mailbag, Cody Tractor, who brings you hot rock topics, and they're always hot. And Goldline, who brings you our guest spot called In the House. And we have a guest uh, this week, so stay tuned. Here's what's on the show, what's happening around the curling world. The provincial territorial playdowns continued this past week in New Brunswick and Alberta, and we're going to review uh, what took place for those teams getting ready, trying to win for the Scotties coming up in, well, God, we're almost the end of January. The World University Games were completed this week in Lake Placid. We were represented there, and uh, we're going to check in and get the results for that. Interesting story this week in the Winnipeg Free Press about a school division in Manitoba suggesting curling is a high-risk activity. <laughs> we will take a look oh, at that. <laughs> what? Why? What? What do you? <laughs> what, uh, what does it, does everyone That's carry funny. knives now that they can uh, go at each other? <laughs> do they? <laughs> okay. Well, we'll get to that. You can tell by my pausing. I'm not sure it's high risk, fellas, yet. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We just mentioned the playdowns are happening for the Scotties and the Briar. Uh, they've started, and uh, there's a bunch of teams, as we know. 18 is what the um, Canadian curling has decided to have at the national championships, uh, which means there's going to be a few wildcard teams who get in. We're going to take a look at that and how it's going to work. Mailbag. This week, we've had a lot of comments through our email and our Facebook group regarding our discussion about curling clubs closing and sheets of ice being lost. Warren, you, you gave us a lengthy list of what's happening there. And I got to admit, it sounds like, oh my God, is the sport collapsing altogether? Uh, so we're going to take a look at that. It's uh, Patrick sent us an email about that. In the house, we've got a guest. Uh, team Fujisawa from Japan was the first Asian team to win a Grand Slam event. The fourth one took place last week in Camrose, the co-op championship. If you get a chance, you got, you got to see Kevin's post-championship interview with them. Uh, it, it, it's almost heartwarming, really. It was It was just great. We're going to talk to... Uh, their coach is a Canadian, J.D. Lynn, uh, so we look forward to that. What's Happening Around the Curling World is brought to you by Sports Interaction. You want to bet? You can do it at Sports Interaction. Get in on the action and make a play at Sports Interaction. 19 years old or older, Ontario only. Please play responsibly. Okay, boys, uh, we've completed uh, provincial championships for the Scotties this past weekend in two provinces, New Brunswick and Alberta. Uh, Kev, you looked into all this, uh, bring us up to speed, man. Yeah. New Brunswick and Alberta. So New Brunswick, it was, uh, and the Andrea Kelly show, I think is what we should probably say. The, uh, the final, they played Abby Burgess actually of the Burgess family, which is another famous uh, curling family. Um, but 
Andrea Kelly won that final 10 to 5, but this is the important part, you guys. They went undefeated as a team. The, the line scores for the Andrea Kelly team, they played seven games to win the province. 11-1, 9-0. played Burgess the first time, 10-5. to 9-2, and then 10-5 in the final. Didn't have a close game to win the province. So that's a strong team coming in out of New Brunswick. Alberta, the story is Kayla Skirlick. I think it's exactly how to say that's a tough name, Skirlick. Uh, Kayla, but um, playing Scheidegger, Casey Scheidegger, um, probably probably the favorite going in, but Kayla's team went undefeated through the entire Alberta's, but the, the, the story was her last shot. Down one, going home in the final, the rock on the forefoot, pretty much fully buried. She could see just a sliver of it, just a sliver past the guard. She looked at playing the intern bump, for one to tie and, and go the extra end without hammer. There was a potential run back for one. I don't think there's any chance of run back for two because there's another guard in the way. So difficult. So she thought, you know what? This is for the win. Let's try to get by the guard tight. She made an unbelievable thin double and the after championship broom toss. If anybody hasn't seen it yet, you've got to see this. It was absolutely classic. What a shot. What a result and uh, excitement from the team, my goodness, uh, after such a shot. So something to watch. It's on YouTube. Check it out. Everybody check it out. It was an amazing victory, and congratulations to this young team. Skipper's 25, so uh, absolutely fantastic, Jimmy. Yeah. If you if you don't think uh, these people are passionate about curling or that these championships, uh, if you don't think they mean a lot, uh, do what Kevin just said and go look for for the broom toss. Uh, it, <laughs> that you know, broom it, might it, not have landed yet, Jim. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it it's really, really cool to see how much it means to them. Good stuff, uh, Warren. What are your thoughts on everything happening? I'll make a couple of comments. So certainly in Alberta, we got a young team, a new team. I've never seen them before. And again, that shot that she executed, as Kevin suggested, uh, it reminded me of a shot that uh, Nick Adin played in the uh, Slam uh, last week, and he had to come around a guard to make a quick, quick double for two or draw the forefoot for one, and he played it the same way. But I think hers was tougher than that one, and it was a fabulous shot. But interesting, the young team. But then on the other side of the country, in New Brunswick, we got an older team. And Andrea Kelly's been around for a while. This is her 11th trip to the Scotties. And uh, that team, last year they did win the bronze medal. They're always very close. They're like Kristen McCarvel in Northern Ontario. And I look at both those teams, they're – they're kind of part-timers versus uh, the teams that are playing on the circuit almost every week are, are playing away a lot more. And uh, I think as a result, it usually shows. And while I think both these teams have uh, have lots of talent, I can't see them coming through in the end being able to knock off the, the top dogs. But they are very close and they, they are very good players. Isn't it funny though, Warren, you look at uh, so Digger losing that final, you think, oh, she's not going to get to go to the Scotties. She's ranked number six in the CTRS. So I've got the list here, but you've got Anderson, who's number one, of course, uh, but, but already in the Scotties. So now you've got Rachel Holman in Ontario, Jennifer Jones and Caitlin Laws in Manitoba, Clancy Grandy, number five out of BC, but she already won BC. Yep. So she won't be needing the, uh, the top three spots. So if Holman were to win Ontario, Jones or Laws, then Scheidegger's still in. Yep. So it's 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 so muddy. While you're watching the provincials, you almost need to have the list beside you in your chair. <laughs> to, okay, okay, if this person wins or this person wins, then this person's in. Do you know what I mean, Jimmy? Because your top three seeds get in 
Yeah, I do. But it depends who wins the provinces. It looks really good for Scheidegger to actually get in um, through the ranking system, not through the province. Well, that does it. It does handle some of your fellows' objections about we need we need to make sure more teams are in there who are better. Warren, I got a question for you about it. When when we hear we often hear about uh, teams in other provinces, say outside of Alberta uh, or the western provinces, these eastern provinces, Warren, do you think it's good for the game when you start to hear they've won eleven times in a row, they've won fifteen times, they've you know they're they're unbelievable, they're kicking the crap out of everybody is that good for the game warren or would you would you rather see it less you really want to go down that track do you jim we've been down we've been down this one so many times and it's at the point i mean carrie galusha is going to be there for the 20th time right i think we're going to have and i won't get into names some teams in the next couple of years you're going to be into the mid-20s with their appearances yet they've never been in the final four so i mean we've talked about this so many times uh, it's this whole structure and the mixing of teams at different levels I don't think works anymore, but uh, we won't belabor that point any farther today. The only, the only thing, Jimmy, I'd like to add is that the, who I feel sorry for, like in the case of Manitoba, you've got such strength with, with Jennifer Jones and Caitlin Laws, the odds of somebody other than those two winning that provincial, you know, it could happen, it could happen, but the odds aren't good. And so if one of those two teams wins, the young teams that are in that provincial that are obviously very, very good because Manitoba is a very deep province, they have basically no chance of going to the Scotties and they will be better likely than teams that are already there. So that's the only problem I see is that you're holding young, talented teams back when older teams that don't have a chance to win the Scotties when they go are there. That, that just doesn't sit right with me. We need to, we need to help our young athletes. We're going to get into that discussion here in uh, Hot Rock Topics and really kick it around. I'm glad you weighed in there, Warren, uh, Kevin, because Warren shut me down on my uh, question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know what Warren likes. I like to I like to poke the bear a little bit, you know. Um, anyway, the World University Games happen every two years. Last weekend, it was completed in Lake Placid, New York. Canada had two teams, of course. Uh, Abby Marks uh, represented the women from University of Alberta and Owen Purcell on the men's side from Dalhousie. Vorn, give us your update. Well, let's take a look at the women's side first, though. At the conclusion of the round robin with the top four teams advancing to the playoffs, Korea and USA were at 8-1, and one, and China and Great Britain were at 7-2. and two. Unfortunately for Canada, Canada's Abby Marks finished out of the playoffs with a record of 4-5. and five. In the end, China. Interesting, China is starting to raise their head again. Yu Han won the gold medal with 11-1 record overall. The silver was taken by Korea, and the USA won the bronze medal. On the men's side, following the round robin, Great Britain finished in first place at 7-1. USA and Switzerland were at 6-2. Sweden and Canada were at 5-3. In a tiebreak situation, uh, done on ranking and draw shot challenge is how they decided it. Canada did get the fourth spot, and... Uh, went into the playoffs. In the end, the gold medal went to Scotland. James Craig and uh, James's father, Gordon, is uh, a participant in our Facebook group quite often, and we'd like to congratulate Gordon and his son, James, on their win. Uh, the silver was taken by the USA and Canada's Owen Purcell from Dalhousie in Nova Scotia, won the bronze, made a spectacular shot with his final rock of the game to win that one. And so Canada did get uh, some hardware out of the event in the end. A thing to note, the USA did very well. 
USA getting a bronze in the women's and a silver in the men's. So I think that's to be noted from that event, as well as the reappearance of China at the top of the podium, which we haven't seen that for a while. Uh, it just goes to show uh, that, you know, people have been coming out of Canada for a long time now. And uh, the day is over that we dominate the sport. And now at the university level too, you know, uh, I think, Kev, back in your day, no no one could touch Canada. They'd, they'd, they'd definitely win their, more than their fair share, let's say that, um, in, in everything in curling. But uh, you're talking about Yuhan out of uh, China. So that's a, that's a young uh, phenom that I've been watching for many, many years now. And it's just with COVID, you know, this is, we haven't seen her lately, but uh, an incredible athlete right up there with a Minji Kim, in my opinion, they're like, she's that good. So, you know, stay tuned with watching uh, this young athlete over the next, you know, five to 10 years be incredible. I think the other thing to note is the United States and uh, having worked down there with them for a couple of years, the NCAA has not really got their foot into the door with curling at this point. And I'm not sure why USA Curling has never made that approach because I don't think they have. But by my memory, there's still about 30 or 40 universities in the United States that have curling. And once the NCAA gets involved with this, and they will eventually, I think you will see a whole different aspect of curling at the college level, which is going to impact the whole thing overall, I believe, in the USA eventually. Maggie McIntosh is a writer from the Winnipeg Free Press. Uh, there was a metro school division in Manitoba has declared curling to be a high-risk activity. Hmm. You know, I think poker probably is too because uh, you could choke on one of the chips. So, yes, you know, okay. we've got to be careful with these things. So I, I don't understand it. You know, it's really funny. It's sad. Um you know, I can't possibly imagine, I guess you could slip on the ice, I suppose, if that's the worry that they've got. Um, but in Canada, we have a lot of ice. It's something that we have to learn to deal with. I don't know what it could possibly be. You can't throw the rocks higher than sliding them because they're heavy. Um, and the brooms are light. So I, I don't, I don't, I, 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 my wife saw this story and we, we started, we started laughing, but then you think, well, gee, we shouldn't be laughing because I think this person meant it. Right. Like she wrote it like for real. It's not like a joke or anything. So it's really sad when the kids that go to school, you know, they, they you try to take, they took, uh, they take softball right. out of it because the ball's too hard. Oh, oh boy, I guess. Oh my goodness. And, you know, so on, so on, so on. Basically, I guess they just want to wrap the kids up in bubble wrap so they can't hurt themselves during recess, I suppose. I, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a sad, it was a funny story. But yet kind of sad that uh, they would even think like that at all. Like curling, you know, you go into the back and you flood the ice and, and, and you, we used to call it jam pail curling back in the day. And, and you just, uh, you know, throw the stones during recess or at lunchtime and you can play an end or two and it's great fun. And I don't see any danger in, at all whatsoever. We have to deal with ice. In Canada, we just have to do that. And, and uh, yes, sometimes a kid might fall down on the ice. It's true. You know, walking up the steps or, or even on the curling ice or on the hockey ice, for that matter. You could choke on a poker chip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's kind of how, how, how bad this is. Like when you start thinking like that, oh boy, where does it end? Maybe, maybe this past week they changed the rule and you're allowed to throw the rocks through the air at your opponent or something. I, I, I wasn't sure. No, but interesting enough, I mean, I think it, 
it requires the proper safety precautions, and maybe that's something that's never happened in curling. And yeah, there can be injuries. I, I know of uh, a couple of situations myself, and, and a gentleman I played with for many years, Bob Esdale, who was an excellent player in the in the 70s, um, he fell up in Kamloops a few years ago in a freak accident, hit his head, and uh, you know Bob has had many difficult time recovering from that injury. It was bad. Uh, when I was in school, and this is always when I was teaching curling, one of the things we always said, the only time you touch a curling rock with your hands is when you throw it, uh, and which is true because uh, I watched a young girl put her hand down to stop a rock that was coming down the ice, and she forgot that there was a rock behind that hand. It, it requires some instruction with regard to safety, you know, such as don't ever put your hand on a rock except when you throw it. Um, our sponsor, Goal Line, makes a, a piece of headgear now that looks like uh, kind of like a toque that's, uh, again, a protective uh, device to use for, I guess, in case of a fall. And so probably these type of things for the very young and, and the very old are probably things that should be in place because uh, those are the ones that are most likely to to have a problem. But I don't think to start restricting an activity uh, because you think it's dangerous um, or somebody thinks it's dangerous is, is the route we should be going. You know, if a kid comes home and says, I want to curl, you know, and the parent doesn't know anything about curling, they look it up and it says it's high risk. Uh, that might be a bit of a drag where a parent's going, I'm not going to do it. Uh, in a further story, fellas, we'll talk about it on another show. Ping pong is life-threatening. So we'll uh, we'll figure that one out later. <laughs> you know what though? Uh, you're right, Warren. You make up a you make a great point with the headgear. Um, you would never have a, a a group of grade one, grade two, grade three kids go no, play hockey would. without wearing a helmet. Of, of course not. So to, you know, it makes perfect sense to for these young athletes, young people, if they're going to go out to have them fun. Yeah, throw on one of the headgear. Absolutely. They make them in, in things that look like headbands. They make them in toques. They make them in all these different things. And the school yeah. just has them there. The kids put them on. And it becomes normal. And um, sure. and, and away you go. It, it wouldn't be any different than hockey. But ice sports are ice sports. And we need to be able to play them where we live. Because we have a lot of the year where we have ice. So we need to play these things. Jim played all those years goalie and he never wore a mask. <laughs> That's what happened to my lip. Yeah, it's still, yeah. It was a slap shot. And it hasn't hurt him a bit. Anyway, <laughs> we do it each and every week. That's what's happening around the curling world. Thanks to Sports Interaction for bringing you that. Uh, next, Hot Rock Topics. Uh, thank you to Coyote Tractor. If you have work to do, Coyote has the tractors, UTVs, and ZTRs to do it. We dig dirt. So Curling Canada decided to keep the number of the teams at the Scotties and the Briar at 18. That's not nine each, by the way. It's 18 at each championship. This means that once all the provincial and territorial reps have been determined, three more teams will be selected for the two national championships based on their ranking on the Canadian team ranking system. Some people think these selections should be made before the provincials start and not after. Warren, you probably have nothing to say. Should I go right to Kevin? No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about this briefly. Kevin brought it up in uh, in what's happening around the curling world. So let's look again. He mentioned the, the women first. We'll talk about the women. So the, where we sit today, there's really seven teams probably still have a chance, depending upon what happens at these various provincials. So number one, Einerson. She's in for sure. Holman, two. Jones Laws, three, four. Clancy Grandy, she's in, is five. Schneidegger, six. Eklund, seven. So out of those seven, two are in already for sure. But now comes down to the playoff at the provincial level. And uh, Kevin mentioned certainly Manitoba with Laws and Jones. 
being the most likely likely ones to uh, advance there, meaning the loser is still going to be in the Scotties. So as many people think, and I'm not sure which side of this I sit, they may be right, that they should be naming those wildcard teams before they start the provincials. So if they were to do that, Einerson's in, Holman would be in, and Jones would be in, as well as Laws. So those four teams would already be in it, with, and Jones and Laws would not have to go into the Manitoba Provincial, which means, as Kevin mentioned, a younger team would have a chance to probably win that province, which would be a good thing. So from that point of view, it is maybe the way they should be considering going in the future. If we look at the men's side, again, there's seven teams. Botcher's number one, Dunstan's two, Dugushu three, Cooey four, Crothers five, Flash six, and Epping seven. So the same thing, Gushu's in, so already uh, Botcher's going to play Cooey, and uh, one of them's going to be in from that uh, provincial championship, but the other one is still going to be in the Scotties, uh, or the, pardon me, the Briar, so that's already known. It's the same thing in Alberta. If uh, both Cooey and Botcher were declared now that they're going to be in because of their ranking, uh, it would again leave the avenue open to some of the younger teams in Alberta, which is some good young men's teams there. Sturmy is the one that sticks out in my mind uh, forefront. Maybe that's the route that they should go, is to name these uh, wildcard teams before the provincial starts. These teams then wouldn't have to go in those events, and it would open the doors to some of these younger teams. Kevin, your thoughts on it? I'm, I'm kind of the same as you. Like, what should it be? Should you have them not playing provincials at all? And if, if, if you did that, um, would that open up uh, to have a big um, tour event in, in February, which is kind of a, a dark spot for, for the tour. We don't have a major event in February because of playdowns blocking, kind of blocking every week for different reasons. So um, you could expand our sport that way. So there's different ways of looking at this as to why you'd play these. Uh, I certainly think that all provincial playdowns for women should be on one weekend all provincial play-ons, play-ons for men on one weekend to open up the calendar to make sure you can have uh, big events being played before the Scotties, before the Briar. I think that's really important. Yeah, Warren, they do it in golf, right? Uh, like you can go to these events if you're in the top 125, you're on the tour. But on Monday mornings, you can tee off in a, in a qualifier to try and get in the event for that week. So it's changed many lives, but uh, is that kind of the same idea here with, with the wild cards? Oh, kind of not really. I mean, the wild cards are their attempt to ensure that all the top ranks in the country are in the Canadian Championship. And probably this year with this new system, for the first time, I think you're going to be right now, as I see it, you're pretty sure the top seven ranks in men and women are going to be in the Scotties and the Briar unless something strange happens. And I think that's probably the first time that that's ever going to take place. So that's a good thing. Mark it down, Kevin. Kevin, Warren agreed there with something. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot to Coyote Tractor. Mailbag, brought to you by Nestle Boost. Complete nutrition to fuel your day. Thanks a lot to Nestle Boost for bringing a mailbag. Uh, Here it is, a bit of a lengthy one, but but, uh, it's it's really good, I think. This is from uh, the manager of the Vancouver Curling Club, Patrick Prade. I'll paint a picture for everyone, he says. 1965 to 1995, Curling clubs are booming, literally, the boomer generation. Clubs are full, and they don't have room, no reason to attract anyone new. They create an ideal environment for themselves, and finances are good. The natural attrition starts to kick in. The once long uh, wait lists shrink, and one day there's an empty sheet on the late draw. 
It's actually kind of nice not playing late so often, some members think. Then there isn't a, a full draw prime time, but an empty sheet. Money's getting tight. This could be a problem. It's decided that we need new curlers, but how do we do that? We haven't had to try actively to grow for decades. Our volunteers don't have the skill sets and frankly are burnt out after, uh, again, decades of volunteering to help keep dues low. As we know, if we charged any more, everyone would leave and all would end. How much is a round of golf? About 30 to 200% uh, more the, than the cost of a season of curling. Part of the problem? So what do we do now? Change? No, we've always done it this way. All the while ignoring the elephant in the room, the way we've always done it has led us here. It's not working anymore. It's time for change. As uncomfortable, hard, risky, and inconvenient it is for our lifelong members. We either change or risk closing down for good because soon our building or ice plant will need repairs and we do not have the money to pay for it. We've become very exclusive, very uninviting, and extremely unaccessible to a modern customer. For many clubs, it's already too late. Unless financers are found and talented professionals acquired, the downward cycle is a death spiral. Yikes. You need to change now. Big block letters, he says. Invest heavily in growth accessibility, quality programming, hire professionals, train coaches, market. Oh, and raise your prices. Curling is too cheap. Uh, Warren, pretty good email. Yes, I think uh, Patrick uh, has uh, exchanged ideas with us quite a bit here in the last year or so, and he's uh, right on the leading edge here, I think, with what has to happen in, in many of these facilities. And his is a good example. We'll maybe try and have Patrick on the show with us here in the next couple of weeks as to the success that he's turned into uh, the Vancouver Curling Club and uh, how well they are doing. But this is the uh, the crux of it all, and uh, I just, again, further to our discussion last week, put an article up yesterday reminding everybody again of how many curling facilities have been closed in the last 15, 20 years, and that in many cases, the reason for them closing is uh, problems with the club ice plant or with the uh, refrigeration system in some way, shape, or form, or just, uh, in one case, it was a roof, and uh, simply because the manner in how these clubs have been run over the years, there's no money to pay for it, and... Uh, Quite frankly, they end up either getting a loan from somebody or in one case, two cases, as we know, GoFundMe pages put up or they're going to have to close their doors. And so whether it's mismanagement over the years or whatever has happened, we do face this situation. And uh, it is dire, I do believe, because we've lost a lot of clubs and we're going to lose more if uh, if something doesn't start to happen. And in many cases, yes, the curling numbers are down as well, but in some cases they aren't, and the club still has to close the doors because they can't maintain the building. So Patrick is right on uh, on what he's saying, I believe. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, unfortunately, I think he is spot on as well. Um, yeah, that, it really brings me back to when I was a kid, and uh, um, the clubs were full. He's right, and so... Uh, I would have started curling in, in the mid to late 70s, you know, somewhere in there. And I uh, played my first junior provincial in 82. So you know, that's kind of the time frame we're talking about. And there just wasn't much for kids curling because the clubs were all full. And who wants a bunch of, you know, kids running around making noise? So we weren't really welcome. Just happened that my dad and, and uh, Glenn Sneth and this other fellow, his dad was president. So, and my dad was vice president. So our, we got to play. So the two of us, you know, curled and we curled in the same team in junior and stuff. Uh, but most kids didn't curl. And, and here you are now all these years later, there's that gap of, of, of age with the, the 
the kids that just didn't play. And and now we're trying to get kids in, but you know, it's a lot of work to be done to uh, to grow the grassroots part of the sport. The elite part's doing great, but the the grassroots part in Canada, we we did it to ourselves, no question. But now it's a matter of bringing in new people in the club. We just had a real good chat with uh, with a couple of curling clubs lately about the name club and getting rid of that and and, and making it a facility and, and inviting all kinds of people from across the community into your facility to enjoy this wonderful sport. And no, you don't have to be a member. <laughs> like, it's not a private club. Come on in and play. That's really important, I think. Right. I think the other thing overall is how we are presenting the sport. And, and we've seen evidence of that, the fact that the same old, same old, the club game where you get in a team with three other people and you play once or twice a week, uh, to most it's not appealing anymore. I think we saw a good example last week in, in Saskatchewan when they couldn't fill a junior bond spiel for years and then they went down a new approach with it and they introduced a triples competition and with some unique ideas and twists to it. And I think this is the type of thing we've got to do, particularly with this Gen Z generation. I keep saying quick, fast, and quick, fun, and engaging. And uh, that's the thing that we're going to have to get our head around at the club level to get these younger people interested in it. And it's going to take some experimenting to see what will work because we can expound uh, here all kinds of ideas. Some might work, some might not, but there needs to be discussion and there needs to be experimenting. What I may not agree with, with his email, uh, one of the attractions for curling is it's not expensive, uh, you know, to, to, to participate in it, right? You don't have to lay down 20 grand you know, as to, to own a share and all that stuff like you do in golf. Our emailer, Patrick, says, oh, yeah, and raise the prices. Curling is too cheap. I, I, I don't get that. The only sport that we're able to get away with raising the prices and still have the same amount of people at the grassroots level is hockey. You know, ice time, Kevin, now and Warren is like, you know, it's really expensive, but but they're lined up to do it. But this is why we're in this problem we're in right now is because of this Low-priced activity and these big facilities that cost a lot of money to maintain, professional staff to run them properly is very costly. And uh, as a result, most of these curling clubs, to a very large degree over the years, they're running hand-to-mouth. They have no reserve funds. And then they start competing with each other and, and who can lowball who with regard to fees. And so everything gets gets out of whack. And so for the whole thing to continue... You've got to have to pay for what it costs, or again, we're going to lose the building, unless, again, we get these municipal governments to step in and start to support the ho- the curling club just like they do the hockey rink. And so far, that's hit and miss. We do have good public facilities for curling across the country, but uh, it's not the norm. It's the exception. Great email. I'm waiting for one week when we do these shows that, that we get some news that says curling is growing at the club level in Canada. Not so much, right? Not so much. Well, some clubs it is. I mean, at Vancouver Curling Club, I think he told me he's got like 16, 1,700 curlers going through that door. So, I mean, that's pretty good success story. Well, they should get you to put on a clinic, warning. You can show everyone how to use straw brooms. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I couldn't help it. Thanks a lot to Nestle Boost uh, for bringing you the uh, mailbag. We do it each and every week. You want to email us, you can do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. In the house, coming up. Listen to the Inside Curling podcast ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
In the House is brought to you by Goldline. Goldline Curling Equipment can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world, plus their retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and they got a couple stores in Ottawa. Check out Goldline Curling's new impact broom. It maximizes performance for carry, hold, and carve. Learn more all about it at goldlinecurling.com. We got a guest knocking at the door. <laughs> Come on in. J.D. Lind, uh, we're going to tell everyone all about you. Uh, have a seat, J.D., and uh, we'll get you a beer or something. Um, of course, the co-op championship in Camrose was uh, a big event, the Grand Slam event, of course. And uh, for the first time ever, an Asian team uh, won a Grand Slam event. And it was, uh, if you were there, it was great. Suzuki Fujisawa, who is a household name now in curling. And J.D. Lind is coaching them. Kevin lined up JD and uh, he joins us now. How are you, JD? I'm doing great. Yeah, thanks for having me. You sort of hesitated there. I thought maybe oh, maybe he's not very good. Yeah. Uh, well, the reason you might not be uh, is because you you were you were in Katemi Katemi. Am I pronounced that right? Katemi. Yep. Japan. And how long have you been coaching uh, Fujisawa's team? So I first met them when I when I came to Japan in 2013. So when I first came, I was um, coaching uh, multiple teams, and they were one of them. So uh, yeah, it's been almost 10 years since I've been working with them. Yeah, you're you're from from Calgary. Um, that wouldn't be an option for a lot of people to to go over to Japan. Uh, tell us how that all came together. Did you did you go over there cold, or was it an idea you were looking at down the road somewhere? And, and what happened? How did this all come together? Yeah, it, it, it came completely out of the blue for me. Um, so Hokkaido and Alberta are actually uh, sister provinces. So they've done a lot of sports uh, exchanges in the past, uh, different uh, government uh, exchanges. So uh, the Hokkaido government actually wanted to bring on a, uh, a Canadian coach from Alberta to run a new uh, academy that they're trying to set up. So basically the Hokkaido government approached the Alberta government to look for people who might be interested to do that. So one day I got a call from Paul Webster, who was working with Curling Alberta at that time. And he said, there might be an opportunity in Japan. We're looking for somebody. Would you be interested? At that time, I kind of said, yeah, if something comes up, like maybe put my name in that hat. And eventually I interviewed and got offered the position and, Initially, it was a it was a one year kind of contract, and it involved me moving to Japan. So for the first uh, three years that I worked in Japan, I was living in Sapporo, and uh, and yeah, that's how it all started. Do you still live in Japan, or tell us how you split your time? Since uh, 2016, I've been living in Calgary. So yeah, from 2013 to 2016, I was living in Japan. After that, the the academy. Uh, actually closed and I transitioned to being the national coach uh, through the Japanese Curling Association. So once I did that, I moved back to Canada and that's how it's been uh, since then. So um, so the team comes to Canada to train. I'll go to Japan a few times a year or depending on the schedule when I need to. And and uh, yeah, basically that's how it's been, been running since then. Right on. Before we bring the boys in, uh, we often talk about the growth of curling. You know, last week's show, we're, and we're, we talked about it today, about you know, curling clubs that are closing, but Kevin and Warren have both said, Jimmy, you gotta, you gotta, if you want to see curling growing, uh, go over to Japan. Can you, from the horse's mouth, can you, can you give us a, a take on that and what curling is like over there compared to what well, we know what it's like here, but tell us all about that. Yeah. Curling is, has definitely grown in popularity. I think dedicated curling rinks, there's probably about 12 or 13 in Japan right now. Uh, most of them are in Hokkaido, which is the, the Northern Island. 
but uh, it's extremely popular. Lots of viewership on TV, tons of fans. Every curling rink is, is pretty much packed. So a lot of people in Japan want to try it, but there isn't a ton of available ice to do it. But it's definitely growing and there's talk of trying to build more rinks all the time. Uh, you know, the biggest issue in Japan is cost of land is very expensive. It's hard to find find land to do it. But yeah, as a sport in, in Japan, it's uh, extremely popular, uh, especially since the success that we've had uh, at the last two Olympics. Hey, Kevin, I think, uh, was it, wasn't that the, you were in Nagano, weren't you? Wasn't that the famous story where uh, you guys stole ice from the medical uh, center? <laughs> no, no, that, Mike, Mike Harris was in Nagano. Oh, okay. We were in Salt Lake City. <laughs> okay. Mike beat us in the final, actually, to go there in 1998. But thanks for bringing that up, Jeff. You know, I almost got over that. I was almost over that loss, but darn it. Uh, yeah, that was Mike Harris in Nagano. We were actually just, uh, JD, about 45 minutes south of, of Nagano um, in Okaya where uh, we went three or four years to to teach curling and, and, and grow the sport. And I was back in... 99, 2000, 2001, something like that. But I did want to ask you about the growth because back then we went and people were excited about the game. But the level of play, even with the better teams, it just simply wasn't there. It just, the, the level of play wasn't there. It certainly is now. Um, but there's quite a uh, a tour, an, an, like an inside the country. I shouldn't say inside the country, but just events run in Japan. And, and teams from Canada do go over, teams from uh, South Korea go over, I believe teams from China come over. Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so there's been a, a push to try and get uh, a domestic tour. Um, a lot of the top teams have the budget to go abroad in the fall, which which is great, but there are a lot of teams that uh, that don't have that means. So so they've been trying to, to get more and more events uh, inside Japan. So uh, one of the tours is, is a Hokkaido tour, which runs... Uh, beginning of August, sort of, I think until sort of mid September. Uh, so I think there's four of, there's four events this year and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, before COVID there was teams from Korea, Canada, it's been, been doing great. And, uh, they try and do it in the summer so that teams that, uh, still want to go to Canada in the fall play in the slams have that, that ability. And then obviously the Carazao international, which is in December every year is one of the, the premier events that, uh, that teams love going to. So, so there's about five events right now that are very strong in Japan. And, uh, I think their, their goal is to continue to, to grow those and, and hopefully see a few more. Well, I think the growth is definitely, uh, definitely there in, in, in all of Asia, not just Japan. Um, I'd like to ask you a little bit about the team you played in the semifinal in Camrose, Team Gim. Um, since they uh, merged, uh, Minji Kim and Unji Gim have merged, they've become quite a force. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, on, on the strength of, of, of that team, but even the South Korea program. Yeah, the, the Korean teams are all extremely strong. And um, when, when we used to play Minji's team, they were all uh, pretty much juniors, and they were one of the top teams in the world. Um, so as soon as, uh, Gim added her to the team, we knew that that, that was going to be a very strong team, but they've had an amazing year and, uh, really one of the best teams on tour this year. And, and also, uh, EJ Kim, who, who we played in Pyeongchang is still one of the top teams. So any, anytime you play one of those Korean teams, you, you know, it's going to be a great game and they have tons of depth in Korea, which is, uh, which is really impressive. So all the curling in, in the Pacific Asia region is, is very strong right now, for sure. 
Great. Okay, J.D., thanks for joining us and uh, interesting discussion so far. I, too, have a history with Japan, and it goes back to 1986. Oh, I thought it was even going to be earlier than that, Warren. No, not, not 1906, <laughs> Kevin, 1986. <laughs> and as you mentioned initially, um, probably earlier than that, probably the 70s, Wally Ursulek from Edmonton and that exchange program with Hokkaido had gone into the Northern Ireland. He had been teaching curling up there. But it really hadn't caught and hold at all in the Tokyo area. So in 1986, through the Canadian Embassy and uh, a group in Tokyo, I went over there with the Maryland Bodo team. And uh, we were there for about two weeks, did a number of uh, clinics. And at that point in time, curling was very, very new in the Tokyo area. It was uh, just barely, barely starting. Uh, people were very enthusiastic. But I'm wondering today, you mentioned you're in Hokkaido. That's where you're seemingly doing most of your work. How does the uh, situation in the Tokyo area and the main island compare to the Hokkaido area with regard to number of curlers and uh, what kind of impact the game has? Yeah, so Hokkaido is... Uh is the northern province where like the weather here it's very similar to, to alberta it's very cold like winter sports are are just normal here whereas in, in tokyo being such a large city um just the exposure to winter sports in general is a lot less so um you know it's i know that there has been a group of people in tokyo who uh, have really pushed to try and get dedicated ice there and, and i think that's still trying to happen but uh, but really, the, the people in Tokyo who curl, they, they do have some uh, some leagues that uh, that run an arena, and honestly, most of them that live in that area that curl, they take uh, they take a one hour uh, bullet train to, to Karazawa to play. That's how they do it. So there are there are athletes in Tokyo that uh, that are very dedicated, and, and yeah, what they do is they, they get on the train and they they go that hour and they they train in, in Karazawa and go back. So the, the majority of the curling on uh, Honshu, which is the main island is in Karazawa, which, um, which is legacy from, uh, from the Nagano games. That's where the, uh, the curling was held there. So, um, pretty much that is the hotbed in the Tokyo area is, is Karazawa. So you mentioned 12, 13 facilities. Of course, when we were there, it was on, uh, it was on arena ice. And I always remember being in this one facility. It was in Tokyo where they were playing hockey at 10 o'clock. The Zamboni came out at 10 05 and by, 10.30, the hacks were frozen in and the rocks were pulled out of somewhere and we were curling. It's a little different curling, but we were curling. Is there still curling going on in the arena settings or is it all pretty much now in facilities? Yeah, uh, there's still a lot of arena curling. Uh, like I said, especially on the South Island, like in areas where it's warmer, they do it on a lot of figure skating ice. And again, availability is, is tough in the big cities. Um, it's expensive to do, but that's what I think a lot of the, the people still do for sure in that area. So how many dedicated curlers would there be in uh, in Japan today? That is a great question. Yeah, I'm not too sure on on the rec side how many there are, but uh, what I do know is it's growing, and, and I think it's a, a lot more than, yeah, I, I don't want to quote a number because I'm not really too sure, yeah. but, it, uh, but yeah, it's definitely a lot better than it was even 10 years ago. Is the, is the public interest or knowledge of curling uh, growing? Are more and more people aware of what it is and interested in it? Definitely. Like I said, so the, the Olympics was, was really the big coming out party for, for curling in, in Japan, starting, starting in Nagano, really. And ever since then, it's just been getting more and more popular. And obviously, um, a team, Alice Katami, uh, Fujisawa, who I coach, um, really is, a, is a, just a household name in a lot of parts of Japan, just for 
the way that they play, how well they've done at the Olympics, um, the media coverage they get, especially in Hokkaido, like in Katami, their hometown where I'm at right now, like every restaurant I go to, there's posters of them. And, you know, uh, when I'm with them, we can't really go to any places without somebody stopping and, you know, asking for a picture and stuff, which is, which is really amazing to see. So yeah, curling really is, uh, has grown all over Japan. Uh, and, uh, a lot of it is due to, to our success, which has been really fun to see. So we're like a Fushisawa and uh, she has become very, very good. And uh, I guess the question is, how did she become so good? And are there other players and teams that are close to her in Japan and how many? Yeah, so there, there is some, some depth in Japan, quite a bit of, of high-level depth. Like Team Yoshimura is an um, amazing team, Kitazawa. And, and even below them, there's, there's lots of young teams coming up to, to Japan won the last uh, World Junior Women's Championship. So the first time that uh, a Japanese team's ever won a, a World Junior Championship. So we have tons of athletes coming through. And I think a, a lot of the, uh, the success of those teams is, is by Team Fujisawa showing them that, you know, it is possible to succeed at the international level. There's been a lot of good Japanese teams over the years, but, you know, it's really hard to be the first team to, to win something big and, and break through and, and do that. So I think that's... Uh, you know, that's been a big help for, for a lot of our, our teams coming up. And, you know, how Satsuki got to this position is, is just a lot, of, a lot of hard work over the last 10 years. It's been a lot of, uh, a lot of success, but also there's been a lot of tough times that we've, we've all had to really to, to work through as a team. And, and I think the, the way that she's got to where she is is that she works extremely hard. She's very dedicated, but through all those hard times, she you know, all the, the players found ways to stay positive. And, and I think that that really shows when you watch them on the ice, like that is how they are. They're very positive. They, you know, when they, they lose, they, you know, you can see the emotion in their face when they play well, they, you can see it also. And, uh, and through all the years, they've, they've really found a way to just uh, really push through and, um, and find ways to keep getting better. I, I want to ask you a couple things about, because we have a lot of discussion about curling in Canada and funding and uh, what's, what's happening going forward. There's been a, there's been a you know, committee formed to represent the players because they want to have a place at the table. Um, can you tell us how um, it works in Japan with, uh, do they get a bunch of funding, uh, the team? Are they curling full time? Uh, can, they, can they get as many sponsors as they want or is there, do they have to stick to something else? Is there an association that seems to have a play in, in how these teams are done over here, right? There are a lot of guidelines, a lot of restrictions. Uh, what's it like over there to curl in Japan? The, uh, the structure is very similar to Canada. So every year we have a Japan championship, which is, uh, which is our national championship. And um, you have to win that to be the national team every year. So, um, so your funding from the association directly comes from how you do in that event. So the top team would get the most funding. And then there's like a B level, C level. And that funding is, is just to supplement, you know, training and some of their expenses. The majority of the team's budget to, to travel and stuff comes from their own sponsorship, from corporate sponsorship. So they're not, they're not funded athletes uh, by the state by any stretch. It's very similar to Canada where they have the Japanese Olympic Committee that, um, that will give them some money. So for Fujisawa, for example, they, with all their success, they, the majority of their money is coming from from corporate sponsorship and, and then being a marketable team. So 
Luckily now they're pretty much uh, full-time athletes, but that is from them finding sponsors. So uh, a very common situation in Japan is that um, Team Kitazawa, for example, they, they're sponsored by uh, Chubu Electric Company. So the company basically has a team and that company funds that team. So, so that uh, company gives them employment and uh, pays for them to, to curl uh, that company kind of has say in how that team runs so that's uh, that's a common way that uh, some of these japanese teams are are uh, funded as well you guys uh, your team a chinami especially has an incredible following on social media um in japan how important is that does that add, uh, here a following like chinami has would be unbelievable i think it's yeah. i shouldn't say uh, same as you i don't want to say a number because it might not be quite right but somewhere to 350 to four hundred thousand. a lot uh, following on, yeah. on, on just on, I believe, just on Instagram. To what degree does that matter in in Japan? Because it, it would certainly matter here. Yeah, I, I like that. That number is uh, way more than any other curler for sure. <laughs> and uh, you know, she puts a lot of work into it. But for her, that is, uh, you know, her building a brand that that helps herself and her team find sponsorship and find the means to be able to, you know, to get you know, exposure and, and get, uh, get sponsors that can think that can pay their way. So, you know, she's, she's earned, uh, she's earned that following in those fans. Uh, I think not only with the work she puts in with social media, but also, you know, the way that the team and, and everybody displays themselves on the ice. And, and yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty wild. Sometimes cause for me, you know, she's just, uh, you know, a, a normal person. And then you, you kind of forget sometimes that, yeah, she's got this massive following and, and tons of fans. So that's, yeah, it's pretty amazing for sure. Their team has done very well, obviously, uh, Olympic Games, a bronze, a silver. And, and, but this year, I, I kind of feel that this is sort of their year to, to come out and become a, a, a viewed top team. They've always been good, but, but they're, they're, they're upper crust now with winning the Pan Continental and then winning a Grand Slam. How does it feel from, from your team's point of view this year? And does it change your, maybe your goals going forward? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the the Olympic success is um, you know the Olympics are always the the big goal um, when you're looking out for over a four year cycle. But for us as a team, uh, you know we we want to be the you know a team that can, contends in every competition we play, and we want to be um, you know giving ourselves opportunity to win slams, which we're so happy we were able to do. And um, and an event like the the Pan Continental being the first one ever in my hometown, which is kind of like the team's second hometown. Like they, they spend a lot of time there. Like, um, you know, we're happy to be able to be in a position now where we can, you know, be winning these events. And, and, um, and I think that a big goal for us is just to, to find that consistency a little bit more, just the way that's, you know, I've coached my time with them. Like I, we find ways to peak at big events, which is amazing, which is, you know, I think our big strength, but now it's trying to make sure that even when we're, we're not necessarily peaking for those other events that we find ways to still play close to our, our best. So we're going to continue to find, you know, things that we can improve on and, and, um, and keep striving to, to, to get better. And, and hopefully yeah, now that we've, we've won this, this one slam, we can uh, give ourselves an opportunity to win, win some more. J.D. Lind, uh, boy, uh, congratulations. Uh, I, I, I don't know if we mentioned uh, about uh, Suzuki Fujisawa was the first Asian team to uh, to win a Grand Slam. I think I did, but it bears repeating. Um, I guess we can't let you go. Um, if I was going to coach curling, I'm going to go to the guys who are the best, uh, and, and this team right now is the best, uh, and you're coaching them. 
what's what's your one, two, three of uh, coaching? You know, there, there's going to be a bunch of coaches listening going, all right, J.D., well, we've got to steal something from you. How are you doing it? What, what's your secret? Curling is such a unique sport, like, because uh, most team sports, the coach has a lot of input during a game of, you know, what the team needs to do and help them. But in curling, we really don't have the ability uh, to interact much with the team. Like, I know with the slams we do now, but my whole philosophy has been just to prepare the team as best they can so that when they're out there, uh, they have all the tools they, they need to, uh, you know, to play at their best. So for me, it's a, a lot of it is about empowering them to, to get the information uh, so that they feel pre- as prepared as possible. So I know my goal always is to make sure that my team is the most prepared team before any event. And, um, and I think that shows, I think that, uh, you know, they might not always play their best, but when, uh, when we're not, we're always like trying to find ways for the next game. Well, how do we prepare to play to play better? So, you know, we're always working, you know, after every game and just making sure that, uh, you know, you try and prepare as best you can for the next one. And um, I think that's that's pretty much the, the main philosophy for me. So, One quick question, J.D., and I know this is talked about uh, by Kevin and his cohorts on air. The Fujisawa team has a very aggressive style of play. What's uh, what's behind all that? Yeah, a lot of it is just developed from from their skill set, really. Um, you know, I think we we've really tried over the years to to balance out um, our 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 style, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, we we kind of always sort of revert back to to what our what our skill set is. So. Um, you know, uh, that's where they're comfortable and that's where we feel that they're, they're throwing shots that they, they have the advantage over maybe other teams to, to play. So, um, you know, there's definitely times where I would maybe love for them not to, to be so aggressive, but, but again, that comes back to the preparation. Like for me, I, I trust them on the ice, uh, to do what, you know, they, they trust with their instincts and. And a lot of times that, that is aggressive and, and uh, we've had success with it. So definitely fun for the fans. Sometimes a little stressful on the coach bench, but, you know, it, it, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> JD, great job. Um, I, I know we get, we get you know, many, many listeners to the show, including guys who curl professionally, peak performers. Uh, when they're going to hear this, they're going to scream going, how did we miss this guy? How did he end up in Japan? Why don't we have him as one of the coaches? What the heck? Uh, congratulations again on a great career uh, so far, and I'm sure it'll get bigger and better. And we uh, really appreciate you joining us at 1.30 a.m. over in Japan. <laughs> no, I appreciate you guys having me. So thanks a lot. See you, J.D. Thanks, J.D. Good luck with the rest of the year. Yep. Thanks a lot, J.D. All right, that's a wrap. You know when you wrap something, Kev, you're supposed to have a big party, a big wrap party at the end. We haven't had one yet. We want to thank many people, including Rod Paulson. Is anyone going to thank me, Warren? No one's thanking me ever for anything. Thank you, Jim, for an outstanding job of being the host on this podcast. Good night, everybody. We'll <laughs> see you next week. <laughs> we got, there is a bunch of people like to thank including Rod Paulson. Hey, Rod. I know he's, of course, listens to the show and his company, In-House Strategies, for all the great work on our Facebook page and our Facebook group. 
and uh, the management of these emails, which we get a lot. Uh, if you don't belong to the group, uh, why don't you join right now? And uh, we'd love to hear your opinions on everything that we talk about. Send us an email again, insidecurling at gmail.com. And of course, thank you to all our sponsors, Sports Interaction, Coyote, Boost, and Goldline Curling Equipment, who make all of this possible. Can we have a show that's in the afternoon? A little something after lunch for me and, and the sleepy bear. How about 1 a.m. like we had JD okay. today? <laughs> like our guest. Good good guy. Up at, I used to be up at 1 a.m. all the time, man. I was just I was just stepping out of the shower to hit the bar. <laughs> Good job, boys. Thanks a lot. Uh, Warren Hanson, Kevin Martin, our two World Curling Hall of Famers. We do it each and every week. And uh, we also, through the curling season, bring in some special shows, too. So we uh, appreciate you tuning into all of that. Boys, take it easy. We'll talk to you next time on Inside Curling. See you, Warren. See you, Kevin. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff.